Chapter 14. Couldn't believe how quickly I'd forgive her. After all, she was a goddess. Who would ever have dared to pull off such a stunt? I was hooked. I was intrigued. I was also terrified. I knew I'd fallen in love with a stranger. I didn't even know her name or who she was, or for that matter, if I'd ever see her again. She'd taken a piece of my heart, and I didn't know what she was going to do with it. Nothing is more terrifying than to have someone abandon your heart in some unknowable place out there. Maybe it would just be dumped on the side of a road or plopped down on a pedestal in a museum in full display for everyone to see. Thinking about the possibilities made me want to scream. Maybe I should scream now. But what good would it do? I might even blow out this recorder's microphone. After Jacksonville and well into Georgia, there was a detour sign on I-95, so I took US-17, a smaller road that cut through Georgia countryside parallel to the highway, still blanketed with fog. When I felt myself getting drowsy, I pulled over and stopped under a road sign that had appeared out of the fog. Walked around my car for some fresh air and paused underneath the unusually wordy road sign above my head. I took out the little flashlight I always carried in my pocket, shone it up at the big sign so I could read it clearly. It said, We're glad Georgia's on your mind. Savannah, 50 miles. Smiling faces, beautiful places. Charleston, 140 miles. Atop the sign was a CCTV camera, its lens sparkling when I pointed the flashlight up there. A separate smaller panel announced, Entering Ricoboro, City of Pride. I lit a cigarette and stared at the surveillance camera pointing down at me, shaking my head in bewilderment. I decided to do something about that damn camera. I opened the trunk of my car and grabbed a hammer from the toolbox. And I climbed up on the railing next to the road sign, reaching as high as I could and swung the hammer at the surveillance camera. Cracked the lens. A second swing took it in a plastic case and smashed it into pieces. The camera drooped lifeless body hanging down, swinging from its video cape. I climbed down on the ground and looked at my handiwork. It started raining again. I turned on my voice recorder. Good people of Rickaboro, City of Pride, thank you for your welcome. And to all the good people between here and Savannah, and all the citizens of Savannah, which is just an hour drive from here in this godforsaken weather, I am touched by your hospitality but it's nobody's goddamn business if I'm driving through your neck of the woods or what I'm doing with my own life in my own country. Do you all hear me? Good. I take your silence as a sign of agreement. Refreshed, I got back into my car and started the engine. I let it idle for a minute and reflected. I should turn back, no? I'm acting like a madman. So maybe I should go home now and salvage my life. I already come this far. Got back on the empty road, the headlights slicing through the rain and foggy darkness on either side. Maybe the power had been cut in northeast Georgia. As I approached Savannah, the street lamps on the road were not working. Everything was dark, only black in front and behind me. Pitch black vacuum. I hate the dark. Never liked the color black since I was a kid. Throughout one's lifetime, at every important occasion, they force you to wear black. 
would graduate in black, marry in black, die in black. Priests are dressed in black, politicians are in black, the devil's in black, vampires are in black. Whores, stock market brokers, bankers, judges, shamans, magicians, professors, cops, even waiters, for heaven's sakes, are all dressed in black. Basically, man's world is in black and God's world is in white. Black and white. Any color in between makes you feel like a pariah. Black is scary. It's colorless. Suppose you have to be scary to be respected. Dress in red, green, or yellow, you might as well join the circus. Everyone thinks you're a clown or an eccentric tourist, or that you've simply lost your mind and your manhood. All you Saturn and Satan worshippers, you black magic practitioners, you treat the world as if everyone is supposed to belong to your secret society, or at least obey the rules and regulations imposed by your mind-fucking rituals. Not me. I'm my own man, my own rebel. I'll have my own revolution every day. I'm gonna break your fucking rules right now at this very moment. Who says I have to be in a black suit and a hundred dollar black tie and four hundred dollar black shoes and a fucking shaman watch with a black band? Fuck all your status symbols. I'm out. While I was driving, I took off my expensive black jacket. Then my black tie and my black tailor-made shirt. Always keeping one hand on the wheel. The car swerved a little across the middle of the road, but I managed to toss my clothes in the back seat. Now I was topless behind the wheel. Freedom. Naked. Driving my car on the open road. Well, I feel like I'm a step closer to my real ancestors. Only I could hunt at night. That's when the great hunters went hunting, the most fearsome ones. They said if you could hunt at night, it meant the spirits of the ancestors were with you. You were made the chief. I pushed down on the gas pedal with my foot. The car's speedometer started climbing. The wind and the rain rushed by, moaning like a wounded animal. I found myself screaming with excitement. And suddenly in the rearview mirror, I discovered a police car coming up behind me with a loud siren and lights flashing madly. I slowed down and pulled over. Police car braked to a stop right behind me, flashing lights still going round and round. The officer got out and approached the passenger side of my car carefully, his hand on his gun holster. He was overweight, with a thick mustache covering his entire upper lip. I rolled down my window. I'm sorry, officer, I said. Driving license registration, said the officer. Officer, I, I apologize, I really do. Do you know how fast you were driving, sir? I'm not sure. 120 miles per hour. That's nuts in this weather. It certainly didn't feel that fast. Oh, really? It didn't feel that fast, huh? The policeman shoved a breathalyzer device in front of my face. Blow into this now. I haven't been drinking. We'll see about that. Just blow. I did as I was told, but the breathalyzer needle rose no further than zero. I told you so, I said, relieved. Why are you half naked, said the officer, behind the wheel? I got tired of my clothes. Are you on medication? No. Do you have any drugs, herbs, or any other mind-altering substances in this vehicle? Asked the officers, if reading a script. No. Do you mind if I take a quick look? You're not supposed to. What, you some kind of lawyer? Yes, as a matter of fact, I am, I said. But I don't mind at all. Let's get this over with. 
The officer circled the car, opened and closed the trunk, came back around and shone his flashlight into the back seat. Hey, officer, be careful with that flashlight in the back seat. Why? I have invisible passengers riding with me in this car. A ghost, an angel, and a spirit. All three of them are back there. Invisible passengers, huh? Think this is some kind of joke? This is gonna cost you. The officer handed me my Georgia speeding ticket. You'll remember me when you pay this. Freedom is priceless, officer. Chapter 15 That same night I was on the road, a book signing event was happening in a Key West bookstore called New Horizons to mark the publication of Unsung Heroes, Dispatches from Behind the Iron Curtain, by my friend and colleague Nicholas Cooper. The book was published by Prometheus Editions, which was started by Jim Moore, free thinker and political radical who also launched New Horizons as a haven for book lovers. Jim had done everything he could to generate as much buzz as possible in the community for the new book. A good crowd of about 100 people showed up for the event. I was late that night for the launch party, so she came in through the back entrance from the rear parking lot. Nicholas had already begun his presentation, standing behind a small lectern in front of the screen filled with a bright slide of the book cover for Unsung Heroes. It featured a photo of the dissident Vasily Verbitsky. There was a woman on the cello in the far corner providing background music, playing Aram Ilyich Kachaturian's Andantino, the soft, elegant touch. Margaret sat down in the back of the bookshop as quietly as a mouse. Nicholas glanced at her appreciatively and continued his presentation. Back then, Luke Forsyth and I were proud to call ourselves human rights lawyers. But I don't think I understood that human rights are more than just ideals until Vasily Verbitsky case. Human rights are everyday people's desires to free their minds from tyranny and secure liberties for their spouses and children. Those self-evident truths, as Jefferson put it, that we take for granted here in the West. In autocratic and undemocratic regimes, the desire to live free can lead to torture and death. The reason I wanted to write this book with a decade's perspective was to document the incredible struggles that we witnessed. Teachers, students, mathematicians, engineers, workers, ordinary people, calling themselves dissidents, took extraordinary actions jeopardizing their lives and the safety of their families in order to be able to speak the truth regardless of the authorities. Many of them were battling within the framework of the USSR's constitution. Not Vasily Verbitsky. He was a cartoonist by trade who became a self-taught constitutional expert whose underground treatise about constitutional law landed him in jail and... Nicholas turned and pointed to the screen over his shoulder now on the cover of my book. Abruptly, the cellist stopped playing and put down her bow. She was crying. Everyone looked over toward her. That's okay, Marina, said Nicholas. I'm sorry, this must be hard for you. Ladies and gentlemen, Marina was married to Vasily for 10 years. We we're fortunate that she was able to emigrate to our country and be with us today. I'm sorry, Nick, said Marina putting down her cello and covering her hands over her eyes. I hope all your eyes will be opened by the book. I'm pleased to sign your copies and answer any questions, said Nicholas. Thank you all for coming. There was a warm applause. 
People got up and started moving toward the author's table that had been set up for Nicholas to dedicate copies. He waved at Margaret from the lectern and then weaved through the crowd to where she was standing and gave her a warm hug. He kept expecting Luke to heckle me. Where is he? Before Margaret could answer, Jim Moore approached them. Any sign of Luke Forsyth yet, Nicholas? I've got journalists who want to talk to him, so he'd better not pull one of his vanishing acts. Margaret, this is Jim Moore, my publisher. Jim, Margaret is Luke's wife. Hello. This is Forsyth, a pleasure. Luke's at home in bed with the flu, said Margaret, lying masterfully. It's unfortunate, and I know I'm very sorry. Maybe he can do some press over the phone when he's better. Sure, said Jim, disappointed. I'll let him know, turning to Nicholas. What about the Russians? You promised me at least one real live dissident. And you promised me a review in the New York Times and Washington Post. Where are they? Nicholas sat at the author's table and started signing copies that people had already purchased. He turned and whispered to Jim Moore, Plus, you need to stock up on more vodka if you want more dissidents. Margaret turned and watched Marina mournfully placing her cello inside its case. Her eyes locked with long-awaited curiosity, exploring each other for a long moment. The two women were eager to talk to one another. Suddenly, the weight of the situation in the bookshop seemed heavier than either anticipated. Finally, Marina broke out of her conundrum and approached Margaret. Excuse me, are you Luke's wife? Yes, I'm Marina, Marina Hokopian. Vasya was my husband. Yes, Marina, I'm happy to meet you at last. Luke's here too. No, and honestly, he doesn't talk about anything from those days. I really want to know more. Maria seemed lost in her thoughts for a moment. She picked up a copy of Unsung Heroes. Turning to the photo section in the center of the book, she held up the pages to show Margaret. Here's Luke with Vasily, Lev, Tolia, and me. Margaret stared at the black and white picture for a moment, then said, I've heard Vasily's name before. Did Luke talk about Lev or me? Not really. I thought tonight we could be together, all of us, happy for Nicholas. He's done so much for us. I mean, he and Luke brought us to America. I'm so grateful to both of them. Marina closed the book and looked at Margaret solemnly. There's so much to talk about. I don't even know where to start. Tears started rolling down Marina's cheeks. I... I mean, we all miss Luke. Margaret was surprised and intrigued. Nicholas came back around to the two women after signing books, an inebriated little smile on his face. Hey, I'm glad you two finally met. Margaret, can you drive me back? I think I'm drunk. I couldn't resist the wine or the vodka. Actually, I tried both. Chapter 16 Margaret drove along the nighttime streets of Key West slowly. Nicholas rode shotgun, enjoying the cool breeze. They turned into Whitehead Street. Margaret pointed at a Spanish colonial house. It's Hemingway's house. I always wanted to see it. Didn't Tennessee Williams live here too? Yes, he did. Much longer than Hemingway, but Papa had the bigger house. William lived in a cottage on Duncan. It's like D.C., explained Nicholas. Doesn't matter what you do as long as you have a big house. You throw one big fundraising party, they'll remember you and ask for contributions until doomsday. It was a good launch party for your book, no? I hope so. 
I'm glad it's over. Now we can actually talk. Why don't you tell me where the hell Luke really is? The two of you had a fight? He's gone. Gone where? I don't know. He came up with a pretext for leaving, but who knows the truth. What? He's been distant. He barely speaks to me. I knew something was up. He took off this morning, supposedly for some job interview, but hasn't called me and didn't say when he'll be back. He's not answering my messages. What what am I supposed to think? Margaret, having you in his life is what keeps him going. You give him hope. Apparently not anymore. You know how much he loves you. He'd never hurt you. He's already hurting me. Margaret pulled the car over under the shoulder of the road. Do you think he went to see her? What? I mean, how can I compete with her? Margaret broke down in tears. I don't know what to do. I can't take it anymore. Nicholas put his arm around Margaret and hugged her. He held her for a few moments, gently kissing her hair. Delicately, Margaret moved away from him and looked directly into his eyes. She said, There's something I've always wanted to tell you. I knew, I mean, I felt this before, that you wished we were together. Margaret took his hand. Right? Please don't deny it. I feel it's time for everyone to be honest. What I need now is clarity. Nicholas turned a little pale, but remained silent. I wanted to tell you once and for all, you're a dear friend. But if I went off with you, I would become another Luke. I would end up thinking of him all the time. Sorry, Margaret. Sorry, too. Please help me find him. I'm worried. Now I know why he's been avoiding me. Thanks, Nicholas. Let's go home. I've got the guest room ready for you. Oh, I'm not staying. Gotta get back. Ocean Reef Club Airport, please. 764 Barracuda Lane. Sure you want to fly tonight? Sure. I just got a new Cessna. It's a lovely plane. I'm gonna come back and take your family for a ride. Help me, Nicholas. Please, I can't go on like this. I will. Promise I will. Chapter 17 My car is parked on the side of the road next to Folly Beach. The water is calm, covered in a silver quilt of light. Still bare-chested, I'm walking across the sand. This is Charleston, South Carolina. That means I'm 741 miles away from my home in Key West. I've driven about 12 hours, not counting rest stops. I have another 874 miles to go to reach Martha's Inn in Montauk, New York. So I'm almost halfway there. Folly Beach is known as the Edge of America, says the road sign. A perfect place to take stock for someone like me whose life has been on the edge of collapse for a decade now. When your life is on the edge, you think a lot about matters of life and death. You know, as our old friend Billy Shakespeare so eloquently described it, to be or not to be. I guess Shakespeare needed to simplify the dilemma for the working class folks who came to his theater absorb his message. He didn't want to frighten or confuse them with grandiose statements. Good old Billy was a great entertainer. His audiences came first. He didn't want to hurt their trivial feelings or make people feel uncomfortable. Billy was a gentle guy. He let his audience believe that they have a choice, that they can choose to be or not to be. 
even though he knew very well that for anyone to attempt the to-be option truthfully, they have to seriously contemplate the not-to-be option first. But then, why complicate life so much? It was just a play, just some actor pretending on a stage whether the character he's playing is willing to go on with his miserable existence wants to take his own life and end it all at once. God's sakes, that has nothing to do with real lives, my dear audience. And that includes you, dear Elizabethan ghosts, angels and spirits, with your embroidered costume and puffed-up hairdos. You do not have to ask such unworthy questions in your real lives. All right, let's have the mad prince ask the big question on the stage. Did Shakespeare seriously think that you have to be mad to ask such essential questions? Why couldn't Horatio ask it? Or is it because Horatio was the voice of the reason? Did Billy mean that you have to be an unreasonable human being to ponder the worthiness of life? If I'm asking that question now, does it mean I'm on the verge of madness? Well, according to the most celebrated writer of all time, I am. Who am I to argue with him? I really am not sure. All I know is that everything here, right at this moment, on this sand, is so real and so vivid that I have this overwhelming sensation that time is a floating thing. Time moves like the sea waves in front of me. You can ride on time forever. Yet time is making me feel a little seasick is infinite and irrelevant. Time doesn't age. Time doesn't change. Time is like a freezer, keeps emotions fresh. And how come right now, right this very moment, I'm reliving my life from 10 years ago? Moreover, I'm reliving it in two parallel realities, both here and elsewhere at the same time. To be geographically exact, I am simultaneously at the edge of America and in Soviet Russia before the demise of the USSR. By the way, if you are one of those who's focused only on those daily exchanges between society and your own ego, where you track your material wealth and power position like a stock market chart, stop reading this right now. Continue only if you have a daily brain fog in which you are continuously living and reliving, questioning, and re-questioning your past, present, and future all at the same time. 